Well, the speaker here in this passage is poor Job, right in the heart of his suffering. He's come to the point where, because of that suffering, he's despairing of life itself. But even in the midst of all that discomfort and all that hardship, he recalls that his life is not his own. It's not his own life. It is the gift of God. He says there in verse 8, Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. In his commentary on Job, Matthew Henry begins this section of his commentary with these words. In these verses, we may observe how Job eyes God as his creator and preserver and describes his dependence upon him as the author and upholder of his being. This is one of the first things we are all concerned to know and consider. That is that God is the author of our lives and we are dependent upon him for all things. John Gill, another good and wise commentator, says this in his commentary. His, that is God's hands, had made him, that is Job, and therefore had such power over him as none else had. And the whole seems designed to move to pity and compassion of him. For not he himself, nor his parents, but God only had made him. He was his workmanship only, and a curious piece it was, which his hands of power and wisdom had nicely formed. Puritan way of saying things there, but uh, to be nicely formed. And he says that's, that's the result of this. That's what Job is observing. And John Trapp, uh, another one of my favorite commentators, says that Job is testifying here that God thoroughly and accurately wrought him exactly fashioning his members. Another interesting way of putting it. <coughs> Excuse me. It's, I think, very important for us to see Job acknowledging these things in the midst of his difficulties, in the midst of the hardships that he was asked to endure, in the midst of the loss and suffering, the physical suffering that he was under, because it's often those sorts of troubles that cause men and women to despair of life itself. But God teaches us through Job that life is a gift from God. And because it's a gift from God, it may not be disposed of cavalierly or even despaired of by the creature. It's not ours to take what we cannot give. And so Job is acknowledging that here. He's, he's acknowledging his life is terrible at this point and the things that he's having to suffer and endure but his life is not his own. It was given to him by God, and therefore he can't take it or relinquish it because it belongs to the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. But let's look at what Job says about the matter of his life. He says, first of all, your hands fashioned and made me. And the Hebrew text brings two ideas together here. You made me, and you made me particularly what I am. 
So if you think of a, a manufacturing process, um, a design comes forward and the design goes into the manufacturing process and there are people who are involved in quality control and as whatever is being produced comes through, those people in quality control are making sure that this one is exactly like that one, is exactly like that one, and that they all meet the standards and they're all the same. Something's being made, but it's not being individually made. But the way that Job expresses things here, he's saying, not only have you made me, I'm not just a stamped individual like every other individual, but as we said this morning, I'm unique. You made me who I am. You made me for this time. You made me for these circumstances. You made me the man that I am as I am enduring those things. Now, we know that God doesn't have hands like a person. Job is using that expression here because it, it helps us to understand. It, it brings things down to ways that we can understand what God has done by the mere exercise of his will. <coughs> Excuse me, that's not something we can envision, really. But God is able to do it. And so those, these expressions of his using his hands are used to help us to understand what he is actually doing by his will. The scripture makes it clear that God doesn't just give the power to bring a child into the world to men and women. And that's the extent of his involvement. No, he claims to have his hand and purpose in the very formation of the child he gives to those parents, and that the parents are only the instruments of his power and of his providence in our production. And you might have noticed that in, in the quote um, from Gill, where he says that it's not his parents who have made him, it's not he who has made himself, it's God. He's saying, you're the one who made me. And he acknowledges that, and the word of God teaches that. Um, it's referred to in this text by Job, and as we read this morning in Psalm 139 by David, he makes that very clear in, in Psalm 139. Verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It wasn't something that just happened automatically, but it was actually the deliberate design and work of God to make each of us as we are, who we are, and what we are. And that's what Job is acknowledging here. Gill again says, the whole is intended to observe the perfection of the human body and the exquisite skill of the author of it. Make sure that we understand that this is the work of God, this miracle of life that we possess. And then, in the despair of his circumstances, Job says this, and now you've destroyed me altogether. This is acknowledging that everything he is, all that he is, is a result of God's working in him. And now he also acknowledges that all of my life has come apart because that's your purpose too. I've lost my family, I've lost my goods, I've lost my health, I've lost the confidence of my wife, I, I've lost all of that because of your purpose. 
And he sees his life as being eaten away or consumed by God. And he had referred to this a little bit earlier in chapter 1, in verse 21, where he is acknowledging it in a different way. You remember these words because they're, they're pretty famous for, for Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. And that's the same thing. He's saying the same thing here. You gave me life. You gave me all the things I had. And now you're eating them all away. So I came into this world with nothing. I'm going out of this world with nothing either. Um, and, of course, Job said the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we're told that in all this he did not sin. Because he was acknowledging that. You're the one who made me. You've made me everything that I am. Now you're taking that away from me, and blessed be your name. God blessed Job with all that he had and all that he was. And he freely acknowledges that, reminding himself that his whole life, every facet of it, was in God's power. And now that same God seemed determined, at least in Job's mind, to take it all from him to destroy altogether round about. And as he does, Job speaks then very boldly with faith and reverence to the Lord. So he's acknowledging this reality. You made me. I'm here because of you. Everything I had, everything I am, is a result of you doing it. You're taking it away. And now comes verse 9. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? He says, Lord, remember or mark and note that you've made me like a heap of damp soil, and then will you return me to the powdery dust? I love the way he says that. You've made me like damp soil, so you've taken that, that soil and you've mixed it with water, you know, like you would, you would do to make clay. And that's what you've done. You've given me life. And now will you just return me to the powdery dust that I was before you made me? He views it as we should. I'm sustained in this form and in this place, big head or not, as long as God holds me here. And it's the same for all of you. You possess this place. You're in this condition as long as he holds you here. And when God is ready to remove you or me, our physical being will fall into dust. Calvin says that it's as if workmanship is taken out of us, that when his workmanship is taken out of us, what remains? And nothing remains when his workmanship is removed. And that's a fascinating way to look at it, I think. We are what we are because of his workmanship. When that hand of workmanship is removed, we then, then nothing remains where we are no longer. Um, and, of course, that's why we're thankful for the sustaining of our souls by his grace and by the saving of our flesh, too, by Christ's work on the cross. You have made the whole and every part of me from top to toe. Not my nails accepted, as Mercer has it, with extraordinary care and cunning. 
bestowing upon me mercies enough between head and foot to fill a volume. That's John Trapp. He says, you've made me head to toe and even my nails. And there's so much there that if we were to write about it, it would take volumes. And it's true, isn't it? Um, over the years and, and centuries, as men have explored the body and written about it, it's produced volumes of information that, that where you have doctors who can only specialize in certain areas of health because they're so complex and there's so much to know about that one specific area of life. And so volumes and volumes have been written, uh, much more than were available in John Trapp's day. But he could see that. If you're going to write about this wonderful thing that God has done in giving us life, it's something that would indeed fill volumes. It's humbling to remember what we are on the one hand and what God has made of us on the other. You kill this body and it very soon becomes nothing more than dust and ashes. It's amazing, isn't it? That here we are with life and, and we think of the presence of life we have right now, but you kill this body and it just becomes dirt again. It just disappears. We delight in resurrection, in the resurrection beauty that's described in 1 Corinthians 15. And love to read those passages, and they're very comforting at times when we've lost those we love in the Lord. But it serves us well to reflect at times on not what the resurrection promises, but on how the buried body is described there. What is sown is perishable. It's sown in dishonor, weakness, and it's natural or one that has to be sustained outwardly or just collapses back to dust. That's the idea of naturally there. It's something that's sustained. And if there's not an outside force giving it life and sustaining it, it just collapses away. We are, as one says, a curious piece made from brittle clay. It's in light of this that we come to grasp more fully, I think, with just what it is that Jesus Christ has done for us. It inspired John to write this in 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So here we are in this present existence. We're looking forward through Christ to an existence that is something that we can hardly imagine or hardly begin to focus on because of the grandness of it, because of the nature of it. And all of that is a result of the work of God in us and on us in giving us life. And while what will be has not yet appeared, what is evident is that we're like clay in his hands, cast into shape, into this shape, as the clay is formed into a vessel 
according to the skill and the will of the potter, says Matthew Henry. And in that truth lies a paradox or a seeming contradiction. On the one hand, not one of us has any cause to take pride in his or her body or personality or nature because it's all the work of God. So there's no cause for me to take pride in, in any, any part of it. It's the work or fashion of God. But it's for that same exact reason that no one has the right to despise his or her body or life either. So there's the paradox. There's nothing here for me to take pride in, but there's nothing here for me to despair in either or to despise. Because this is who we are, is the work of God. Here then, Job minds the Lord, that means reminds him, by the matter whereof he was made, of the frailty, the vileness, and impurity of his nature to move him to a mitigating of his misery. So Job, just get the sequence here, Job is saying, you made me, I am what I am because you fashioned me and you made me this. You're now taking away what you gave, and I am just reminding you that what I am. And I am just this frail, this fragile clay, and I'm looking to you to help me to bear up under these burdens that I'm having to bear. David, perhaps following Job here, says of our God in Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And that's what Job is reminding the Lord of here. Not that the Lord needs a reminder of it, but it's Job expressing from his own heart his appeal to the Lord and the grounds for his appeal. And with that comes Job's analysis of what goes on in the womb. And it might seem strange in its poetic expression, but really what you have here is, as Matthew Henry says, an elegant similitude which preserves in its own way the dignity and the wonder of life. He says in verse 10, Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me, with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews. I said the poetic aspects of that may at first sound strange, but we are, as Job puts it, poured out like milk and then coagulated like cheese from that milk. And that's a picture which speaks for itself. I think every adult can follow that picture and realize the, the reality of it. Um, the, the coming together of the man, the woman, and then the result of that is this form that develops within the womb. And then on that comes the, all the other particulars, um, and which he adds here. The skin and flesh, says Matthew Henry, are his clothing. The bones and sinews are its armor. 
not offensive, but defensive armor. God has, in all of his creative work, put on display his wisdom and his power and his goodness. But those are especially evident in the creation of men and women. And that's why, in part, it's so tragic to see this work and all that it bears witness to so casually destroyed by the hand of man. It bears solid evidence to his depravity that he would take this wonderful thing that happens and then destroy it because it's inconvenient or because he's bothered by it or she's bothered by it <coughs> or for other reasons. Not just in the sense of abortion, but going beyond that and even cavalierly taking the life of someone on the street. Doing it without considering what it is that God has given us. And it puts on display the depravity of man that he would be willing to do that. Something that he can't in any way mimic or produce, but he's willing to steal and ruin as John Trapp says, besides what is seen, God has packed many rarities, mysteries, yea, miracles together in man's chest. All kinds of interesting things packed in there that uh, are just uh, miracles and strange things, rarities, he says. And surely, saith Carl, another commentator, if all the angels in heaven had studied to this day they could not have cast man into a more curious mold or have given a fairer or more correct edition of him. He says if all the angels had studied all the way since eternity till now, they couldn't come up with a good of, as good of an edition of you as God has. And I think that's an interesting way to put it. Then in verse 12, Job says this, You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. You notice the language here in this section. You have granted or worked into me, he says, life. You've worked that into me. And first, it's that which, when it's given, makes us alive. So there's that sense that's being referred to. We have life. Life has been worked into us by God. And... Uh, when it's taken away, that brings death. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life, Job said in chapter 33. Into my body, thus formed and organized, God has infused a soul, says Trapp, and that gives us life. But that's not all that he intends here. Life is not at a given at any point. And it's given and preserved and taken by God at his will. Job here uh, speaks of how his life had been preserved by God. He says that you have preserved my life. And that was perhaps more accurate than Job even knew at the time. Because you remember how this book begins, right? Satan comes to the Lord and says, doesn't Job fear you for a reason? And uh, he says, haven't you put a hedge around him and his house, all that he has on every side? 
Um, you've blessed the work of his hands and his possession. You've increased his land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The only reason Job is worshiping you, the only reason Job is serving you, is because you have preserved him. Take away that preservation and he'll curse you. And you remember the Lord responds to that and says, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So he's preserving Job. He says you can touch everything else that he possesses, but not him. And then, of course, Satan comes back and he says, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and then he'll curse you to your face. And what does the Lord say? The Lord says to him, Behold, he is in your hand, but you can't have his life. You can make him sick, you can put him in agony, but you cannot take his life. And the Lord is hedging him about. So Job says here, you preserve my life. I don't know that he understood quite how true that was under the circumstances, but he understood it enough to acknowledge it here. So he acknowledges in chapter 10 that your God has, is the one who hedges up lives with what is elsewhere described as a hedge of thorns, one that keeps threats out and keeps us in. And many of the things that Job was being asked to, to endure excuse me, would have destroyed him if it hadn't been so. When you go back and you read how his story begins, you can see that any one of those losses could have been the end for him if God had not been preserving him by faith. When we see death around us, and yet it doesn't touch us. We have two reactions. We can either despair and wish he would end our life, or we can pull back and wonder why God has determined to spare us while taking others and reverencing him in that decision. It's sometimes very difficult to do, especially in intimate relationships like with husbands and wives. In that sense, the one bows in worship before his sovereign right as creator, the other demonstrates a lack of regard for the divine potter. Now, O Lord, you are our father. Isaiah 64, 8 says, we are the clay, you are the potter, we're all the works of your hands. And I've got to close this, but we also know there's new life, and that is also a gift to us from God. And like our physical life in this world, it's under his safekeeping, under the faultless guard of the Almighty forever. He's the one who gives us eternal life, and because of that, we will never perish. But he says here also, and we'll close with this, that with God, with life from God, comes his steadfast love. And the idea of God's steadfast love, as Job describes it here, is really fleshed out by Paul in Romans 8, where he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, and so on, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But it's the knowledge of this love that comes along with life to those who understand it, Christ, that preserves us both efficiently and sufficiently. And what I mean is it carries us through all the various changes of life. 
David said in Psalm 3, uh, when, I, uh, when he fled from Absalom, he said, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are shield about me, my glory and the lifter up of my head. And then he talks about crying out to the Lord and being surrounded. But it's the Lord that gives him salvation. And that prompts John Trapp to say this. David doubts not of safety, though asleep in the midst of enemies, because God sustained him. When as Samson and Ishbosheth, asleep in the midst of friends, were circumvented because deserted by him. O pray, pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be ever with our spirits. Visit him in duty, that he may visit us in mercy. And all this comes together in regards to his trust in the heart of God. And he says, I know that all of this, and what's he talking about? I know that all of this, this, the losses, the trial, the hardships, were in your heart. That these are the things that you have prepared for me. And that's the last aspect of life that we want to just close with. That your life has been given to you and shaped by the Lord, not just in your features, not just in your physical aspect, but all the things that are a part of your life. The trials, the difficulties, the sorrows, the joys, the blessings, the challenges. They're all life as he's given it to you. And they, because he sits as a refiner, those things for you who are in Christ are designed for your purification and for your being brought closer and nearer to him in faith. But it's all known to him. It's all in his heart. It's all in his purpose towards you. And things are not falling out haphazardly and knowingly to him. He knows it. This is the life he's designed for you. He has a purpose in it. He has a design in it. And we exercise our faith and trust in him when we believe as Job did that though he try us with fire, we will come forth as gold because we're his and his steadfast love preserves us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the life you've given us and we pray, Lord, that we may see it as from your hand and thanks and acknowledge that blessing. And Lord, we pray that with the life you've given us, we would seek to serve and glorify you, whether it's in acknowledging your hand in our great victories and successes, or whether, Lord, it's acknowledging and submitting to your hand in our trials and suffering. Father, help us. We are but dust. We are weak, Lord, but you are strong. And we pray, Lord, that you would show yourself strong in behalf of those who fear you, my Lord, bolstering our faith as we endure and as we enjoy the life which you've portioned out for us. We ask this now and give thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen.